Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. On today's Tech Talks, we are talking to Robert Russell. He is the CTO of Sensei. But before that, good morning, Jack. Got each one. It is a new week. It's a new week. Full of promise. Full of absolute promise, yes. I mean, what's the date? Is that 29th? Guess where I'm off to. What don't give a fuck. Portcullis House. What's that? Parliament. Oh! Yeah. What are you doing? You're taking a bill up there to turn into a law, are you? I wish. No, uh, interviewing a member of the Select Committee for Science and Technology for wow. this show. Wow. You're excited to be able to talk about that one, right? Yeah, that's. That, I'll give it to you, Dave. That's pretty cool. Do you know what's more important about that this week? Week commencing 29th, Saturday. Us, Saturday. Um, Do the counting in your head. So if, if if Monday's the 29th... First weekend of May? Yeah, whose birthday is it first weekend of May? Well, it's not Riders. It's not Riders. Whose birthday is it first... What May- are you doing, Jack? What have what you got planned? May the 4th be with you, oh, Star Wars Day and my birthday. I always forget. Is that the reason that you're a Star Wars fan? It's not. It's really not, actually. Um, it's just serendipitous. Mm. Which is a happy accident. But yeah, it's um, not doing much, to be honest with you. 20... Do you watch a Star Wars film on your birthday? No. You should do, by tradition. Yeah, I probably should. If you were going to, which one would you watch? At the moment, I'm just on, I'm on the prequels. I've watched them about five times in the last six months. So, Revenge of the Sith it would be what I'd choose. Well, yeah, it's the only half-decent one, but there's yeah. a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk, but there's also a lot of um, transitioning to the dark side. Which, as I get closer to 30, I think I might be doing also. Without the power. Oh, absolutely without the power, yeah. Unfortunately. I don't know, would you be a Jedi or a Sith, do you think, Dave? Um, probably realistically a Sith. Yeah, or a Gungan, like Jar Jar Binks, maybe. Yeah, no, <laughs> that is more likely, unfortunately. <laughs> Whereas I would probably be an Ewok, a small fairy thing that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> that, you know, as much as I'd like to be a Sith or I'd something. Say, I'd say they've probably got a slightly better build than you. I mean, they're much more suited to their habitat than I am. I'm not built for London. They are built they're for stockier, Endor. They're more muscular. Mate, I could beat up an Ewok, all right? <laughs> could you? Yeah. Maybe not a few of them, but one, I reckon. Listeners, get in touch if you think Jack <laughs> could beat up an Ewok. Um, <laughs> this is a bit of a random start. Let's get into the interview. Oh, there's no there's no link into it, is there? There's Yeah. Ewok. Well, although I bet the droid fleet probably had an autonomous factory. Oh, when they made the clone army on Kamino, I'm almost Absolutely. certain that they would have. Yeah, I think I think the 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 uh, industry 4.0 has happened in the Star Wars universe in a far, in a galaxy far far away. There yeah. we go. There's a company like Sensei out there right now, making sure that those small margins. That's are... the most tenuous one yet. There we go. Um, today's show, we are interviewing the CTO of Sensei, uh, Robert Russell. Stick with us, though. We will have some sensible commentary on it following this interview and then some news. Sensible content. So today we're talking to, to Robert. You're the CTO and co-founder of Sensei. Yep, that's right. You're, you're a business that has been around since 2015? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we formally started at the end of 2014, but I think we really hit the ground running in 2015. What is Sensei, in case people aren't familiar with, with the business? So Sensei, Sensei we focus on bringing scale to predictive maintenance and, and what that means is the exploitation of 
condition monitoring data that you can use to assess the health and status of machines that you use within your business mm -hmm. and use that to drive forward your maintenance policy to be as proactive as possible and minimize any unavailability, downtime and product problems you might have in your production systems. What kind of difference, if you don't mind me asking, can you, can you make by doing that? Because I have no idea how long a machine lasts, how long they break, kind of. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming, obviously, to form a business, there's, there's quite a, a, a stark difference, but it would just be interesting. Yeah, so if, if you think of industries that are uh, heavily reliant on continual production processes, yep. where margins are very, very tight, uh, any stop in that production process has significant impact on the business. And the, the, those costs can range quite considerably. If you think of maybe the automotive sector, if you were to stop an automotive production plant, you're probably looking at somewhere in the region of uh, 3 million euros an hour. Um, and if you relate that maybe to something like a food and beverage production, you're maybe measuring that in the hundreds of thousands of pounds per hour. Um, obviously, you know, to stop the entire plant, it needs to be quite a substantial failure, um, but they do happen. And if you can minimize those, and reduce those, the, the ROIs in what we're providing can be quite incredible. And what I find quite interesting about that is that the kind of clients that you are hinting at there are going to be big brands, right? The, to have that kind of scale operation, they're, they're going to be fairly big organizations. Yeah, yeah, we, we are um, focusing on, you know, the kind of FTSE 100 type companies yeah. um, and the high end. We, we, we realize uh, to, to bring this technology into the market, we have to be looking for those companies that are moving fast and looking for these benefits. As we sort of see um, sort of industry 4.0 and smart factories becoming more of the norm, mm. we will see that we can actually come down uh, in, the, in the sectors and start to look at the tier, tier ones, tier twos and tier three suppliers. But you mentioned before we hit record that Nissan were your first client. And you were a business started by four guys around a table. You know, you normally think of a startup and you're looking at maybe some smaller ways to establish yourself, but you're going right out there and getting Nissan on board from, from the off. So yeah. that must have been a, a challenge, kind of, hey, we're four guys around a table, but we want to work with Nissan. So I just was intrigued by that and how you guys, as a founding team, thought, this is how we can make a difference in this market. This is how we can position ourselves and how that idea came about. Yeah, I mean, we like to think of ourselves as, as actually having quite a different viewpoint on how to approach this problem um, and having and being quite innovative in what we're doing. We have uh, been around doing this type of work within you know the aviation and the helicopter sector for, for decades and, and, and solve the problems that could be faced there. <clears throat> we, I think we were very good in the early days at presenting our vision well and the timing with Nissan was almost perfect. They, they, they had been... Um, addressing the problem of predictive maintenance for years before we'd even approached them. Their problem was how do they scale the solution and we we were coming in at just the right time with, with the answer to that problem and how we address it at scale, utilising a lot of automation, cloud-based solutions and combining that with machine learning. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what is it? Is it kind of like a, a device or a dongle in some way that sits next to the machines monitoring them and then it goes through to a, to a cloud-based platform that alerts if that machine stops yeah. working or...? No, not um, where Sensei starts is uh, in, in the cloud with right. an interface through to uh, maybe like an IoT middleware platform. Right, okay. So you could think of something um, you know, like uh, ThingWatch from PTC or MindSphere from Siemens. Those, those are the ideal targets for us, but we realize that these are relatively 
new platforms that are coming out. And we still need to deal with legacy solutions that are out there. So we, we can utilize data from factory historians oh, okay. um, and even offer customers the ability just to push data us in the format of flat files. Um, so there's no hardware offering. We, we, uh, we, we deliberately made that decision right at the start. Um, recognize that there was a lot of competition already in that sector and a lot of uh, maturity there and people moving in that direction. So we focused down on what we knew best, mm. which was uh, processing the data, performing the analytics and, and, and providing the, the, the result to the end user. Prior to starting the business, how well did the four founders know each other? So we'd all, we'd all worked together um, in a previous organisation and it's uh, you know quite quite different roles there. Um, yeah, I, I my, my background uh, from an educational point of view was as a mechanical systems engineer, but always worked within software projects. Um, and it was that bridge between the requirements uh, from you know people developing gearboxes, fuel systems, engines into the software development that would need to take place to perform the monitoring of those from a condition monitoring perspective. Um, so I had a very technical focus. Other co-founders, uh, one was very capable in the area of you know running or, uh, businesses and financial and the commercial side of things, which was ideal. Um, and another whose focus was really on sales and marketing and business development. Uh, and then the fourth co-founder <coughs> is a very, very capable uh, you know, computer scientist and uh, with a background in machine learning. So we actually, um, you know, we, we formed a, a really cohesive team with a good range of skills and interests that we brought together. Um, possibly unlike some other startups where they become either very um, technically focused or very business focused and have to recruit those people in. Yeah. Obviously, when you're starting a business, um, there's a huge amount personally invested, maybe not necessarily capital, but time and effort and, you know, turning down another career opportunity to start this. Yeah. I guess the emotional pull is for you all to be kind of interested in the business side, even if it's not where your strength is. And you mentioned that your your CEO had that, had that yeah. capability. Was it difficult to kind of no, this is my role, I'm not going to get dragged into those conversations at the early part, or was that quite an easy, natural thing? Uh, not, not really. I think we, we all had our natural sort of areas of strength, but um, within a startup in the early days, you've got to do a bit of everything. You're, mm. Even still, you know, I'm still heavily involved in the sales cycle. Right. Um, and, and it's because of the sort of passion you have for the product. You're, uh, you're, 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 you're taking it, you can communicate the vision across effectively to, to customers. Um, and, and yeah, we were all, you know, you're, you're having to do everything, you know, from, you know, washing the cups in the morning right right through to, uh, you know, ad administering the, the email systems at that stage. Um, but I think we had, we, we gelled quite well and, and formed a, a natural team would be new and natural sort of points of leadership. What was the uh, first hire? What was, what was, what was employee number five? And, and how did you yeah. make that decision? Yeah, so... In the early days, we were trying to really prove the concepts within the product. So, um, a lot of the early hires have been, you know, uh, from a, an engineering and software development perspective. So, yeah, we, we brought in additional developers to start to mm -hmm. boost up that team. Because um, in the early days, you, you've not what you're trying to do is you're trying to position yourself with a good product market fit. Um, we really wouldn't have been able to have sustained. You know, high amounts of uh, customers. So we, we weren't looking to drive forward the sales cycle. We're really looking to prove the technology, prove the concept. 
Uh, and that, that enabled us to start to get all the evidence that you need to go into your various investment cycles. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the business has grown to 50 employees today? 50 plus. Um, I think we're probably about 52 at the moment. Where are they based? Um, so the, the company, we are, we're based out of uh, Southampton, but uh, we very much encourage a lot of remote working. It's right. very suitable for um, you know, the, the engineering and the software development side. Um, on the support side and delivery side of the organisation, it's tended to be more office-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're starting to make inroads into um, Germany as a sector. We see it's a very interesting uh, area for us to work and a very good fit with what we offer. Um, so we're, de- we've <coughs> we're developing an entire sales team out there at the moment. How is working in Germany as opposed to working? Was that something you had experience of previously? Uh, yeah, I, I did some experience of it um, through previous roles. Um, and we, we even even before starting to make that move in there, we, we had some uh, organic sales that, that originated from Germany. So we're already dealing with companies out there, um, which is really useful because it gave us some local case studies that we can now build upon as, as reference customers for that German market. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's obviously there's certain cultural differences between the uh, you know the UK and uh, it's been very helpful actually having salespeople on the ground there that are Germans and natural German speakers. Yeah. yeah. One thing that's, I, I, obviously the market has to move to a point where remote working and flexibility is um, embraced because mm-hmm. otherwise, well, you're not going to find any, any staff. But at the same time, there is that nice thing of having a team in an office. And I've spoken to plenty of people who said, yeah, but there's many tools, that, you know, you've got Zoom, you've got Skype, you can replicate that. In terms of the culture, in terms of getting the team ethos right, was that something you had to give real consideration to? Was it quite organic? Or, yeah, we, we do we do go through various um, cycles and iterations, and what we do, we we fundamentally set up as um, remote first. Um, so everything that we do, all the tools we have in place, sort of support that. And uh, you know, I've I've got engineers um, all over the. All over the world, I've, you know, I've got, I've got guys out in Alabama, for example. Mm. Um, some of our support engineers are working up in uh, in Sunderland, um, and, it, and it does work for us. You've got to be very conscious, though. At some point, you've got to bring people together at a personal level. Mm. Um, we operate the the whole company under like an agile process, so that's not just the software development side. Um, even within the, the delivery and the sales and marketing side and the business side, we operate within cycles. And we, we, we run those cycles every six weeks. Um, and what we do is like we target at the end of that six weeks to have like a really big close down session where there's presentations from um, you know from an HR perspective, a commercial perspective, sales, marketing, uh, and then the product team can actually you know present what they've achieved. Um, and we, we, we highly encourage you know, people to come and, and join that as much as they can. Obviously, with people based in North America, that can't happen every six weeks, but we, we bring them over when we can yeah. and get them feeling part of the team. Now, as you expand, you're also looking at different geographies. So Japan, Thailand, Brazil were just a few that you mentioned um, prior to sitting record. With IoT, it's kind of, well, it's reliant on good networks, good infrastructure and connectivity. Yeah. How how has that been? Because I would imagine some of those geographies have different levels of connectivity right to others. Yes, they they, they, they do. And um, but but again, the, the reason that we end up in these locations is because we're it's a very early market for us, and right. we're following those early adopters. 
So we'll start to find organisations that um, are, are pushing the boundaries. Uh, and some of, some of the, ca- the cases that, that we have, it's um, organisations there where they, they're, they're trying to demonstrate that they can succeed in this area, they can start to develop like, a smart factory infrastructure, and Sensei becomes part of that offering that they're trying to demonstrate. So um, there is a bit of experimentation with uh, you know industrial IoT going on and smart factory infrastructure. Um, but finding those early adopters is, is key for us. So that that, that forces us to um, be quite diverse in the geographies that we support. How do you go about that? Because obviously your, your sales team, I think you mentioned predominantly UK, Germany, and then you're hunting down potential clients all over the world. So that must be, it's a big task. Well, a, a lot of those um, sort of <clears throat> um, non-targeted clients, they come to us organically. You know, yeah. we, we've got quite a good presence online. Um, we, we take marketing very seriously. Um, and but that that also implies a very good um, you know qualification process, um, and and uh, we we've got we've got that down relatively well, uh, and in some other cases it's also partnering up with larger organisations that are present in those geographies mm. that can take us there. Um, but some of the larger multinationals that we talk to they might be headquartered in Europe, but they're they're trying out projects you know in South America uh, or or in Asia. And that, that drags us into those those territories. So last quick question, what's what's on the horizon? So for us next, it's uh, you know very much focused on um, moving into the, the German market. We are expanding there with um, you know the, the sales team. We're also starting to bring in uh, engineering resources there because we realise we have to support them. And then the next natural stepping stone for us is, is out to uh, the, the North America. Yeah. Uh, we've already got a co-founder out there that's supporting existing customers that we have. We know we're working with Nissan there already, but that's an opportunity for us to start to explore that market and get ready for expansion out there in 2020 and beyond. Um, and then a natural next stepping stone for us there is, is maybe out to Asia and Japan. Well, look, Robert, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for giving up some time and coming in. Thank you very much. I just want to start by saying a startup were on a journey, and that journey happened to coincide with one of the world's biggest car manufacturers, and it just fell into place that they started working with Nissan. Well, to me, how cool is that, though? What I loved, loved about this is it encapsulated a lot of the themes and ideas that we've talked about on so many podcasts when I was listening back to it and making some notes, I mm. put down that this is the classic startup story. Exactly. With everything kind of done right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're wondering about how to how to build a startup, mm-hmm. listen to Robert mm. and his journey and mm. go, that's it. I mean, he worked with his other co-founders. They each had a different hat to bring to it, but also each loved diving into the other one's specialty. Uh, and there's an awareness there that they don't have all of those skills because he talks about the fact yeah, that yeah. another one who had the commercial side yeah. which was handy yeah. you know handy yeah it's a bit of an understatement to have someone that is good on commercials in a startup but a lot of startups don't no I know and you know especially when your product is everything right you can lose sight of commercialization. Mm-hmm. you know going for low hanging fruit you know just trying to do procurement right to, to, to get that first contract off the, state, off the ground and you know, they had all, like I say, all different hats, all different specialties, but they their journey fell in line with that of a almost conglomerate organisation that is international and it seamlessly sort of went hand in hand. And I think them all working together before was a massive thing for them as yeah. well. You know, they, they, they got how each other worked and 
Yeah, like a, you say. A big part of that generator, accelerator mm. piece is about finding you a co-founder. Mm. If you're the PhD from a university-type background, finding the person yeah. who's got the, the experience of the hustle. Think about people like Wayne and Stewart, coming together, two very different complementary skill sets. Yeah. They were very lucky to have that in a group of people that they obviously already had that inherent trust. And yeah, with, with those two as well, the, the, the happy accident that happened with them was is that they were from a stone's throw away from each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which, again, contextually would help. Wait, Wayne and Stewart, just to add context. From Koala, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I love the fact that he talks about the fact that they, they um, presented their vision well in the early days and they came at just the right time. How mm. often have we spoken about the fact that timing is key? Yeah, yeah. And they lucked out to a certain mm. degree. I mean, they mm. didn't because they had a wealth of experience and knew what they were doing, but you've got to approach the market at the right time. I mean, whoever is procuring at Nissan for their assets or whatever, or their factories, uh, their manufacturing centres... Must have had, must have been blown away by Sensei, right? You know, they wouldn't have had any case studies, any kind of backup evidence or anything like that. They've gone in, shown them the product, told them what they can do, which is never enough in procurement. That's just never enough. I'm someone that works in bids and tenders, and I know for an example, for a fact, if you can't provide case studies, half the time they're not going to be bothered. I mean, I'd like to make a joke that it probably doesn't take a lot to impress someone from Sunderland, but I won't. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, the Geordie comes out, <laughs> slay into the mountain. Oh, I again. love Sunderland. But Nissan's, Nissan's a, uh, you know, they're a huge global player. Mm. And absolutely, to have that credibility to go into that market and know how to present that vision as well, mm. like, he de- like he describes, is fundamental to what has given them that ability to be successful. I'd like to ask Robert, you know, when they first engaged with Nissan, did they ever expect to win it? You know, even though everything seemed to marry together quite easily, they would have been up against other people that were a lot more established. Yeah, I mean, they do well, talk about the fact that that there is this ecosystem, so there would have been, yeah, there would have been other players in the system. Yeah, and we and we know from our live event, not the last one, but the one before that, but the one before that even, right. um, that procurement can really start. Uh, Kelly from um, yes. 101 Ways really said that procurement can absolutely stifle startups, mm. and they managed to circumvent it seamlessly because they won it and off they go. And you know, two, three years later, they're a success. We often talk about growth as well. Mm. How do you grow a company? Mm. He talks about the fact that they followed early adopters and became part of their offering. Mm. So it's that's about being organic and about being alive to the market and keeping your ears to the ground. Mm. That's how they are growing and scaling, which yeah. I think is quite interesting. I loved your question, who was higher number five? I just think, you know, because they've got such a core group of co-founders and experts that they, yeah, who was higher number five? They went straight to, you know, build the products out further. Yeah. Engineers, software developers. You know, they, they knew they needed the good market fit, but they couldn't sustain high amounts of customers. So they looked to prove the tech and concept first and then get the evidence for investments, you know, which is easier said than done, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a huge amount to love there about the way that they've built this organization. Mm. I have to admit, I, I still, the one thing that I struggle with every single time when I talk to, to companies is the whole remote aspect because I've grown up in an environment, in an office where it's so fundamental to the success of the team of, of being in each other's space and talking and yeah. collaborating yeah but it clearly works and it, and yeah. you know they, they've got their they've got their delivery and they've uh, they've got their support uh in southampton they've got their sales team that they're growing in germany mm. but the engineering function is remote yeah i mean look it's all built on trust remote working right we know that but they set up as a remotely working business you know that was if anything, part of their culture from day one. They always mm. knew that they were going to be that way. 
and you know developers engineers and so on and so forth probably like working remotely you know whereas if they were to have a big sort of developer house that would just incur so many costs mm. you think of the early days you don't have to bring people in every day you know make sure they're all right on board them properly blah 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 because blah, these things cost money let them work remotely get them to send the stuff over you know if they're if they work well like that then it's it's a win-win and it does speak to a mature work environment <laughs> absolutely um and i suppose one of those things that often gets leveled at accused of, of startup founders if they don't have that maturity is looking over people's shoulders you build a remote organization from the get-go it's probably harder to do that yeah i mean i i think i'm on the same page as you here i I don't mind remote working, but I much prefer being in an office environment. Yeah. Get maybe a higher sense of collaboration and collegiateness, but I think for me, I just it's more of a trust thing. I don't trust myself too much to work from home all the time. It's too many temptations. I've got every Star Wars DVD sitting in front of me, you know. We're back on Star Wars. As always. Let's go to our break. Tech Talks are partnering with Alive and Kicking, a charity that set up businesses that manufacture beautiful sports balls across sub-Saharan Africa. Using profits from ball sales and additional fundraising from events like the Hackney Half Marathon, they're able to train sports coaches to deliver vital health education. We're about to hear from Naomi, a coach in Zambia, who's been trained to deliver mental health education to her community. Hello there, this is Coach Naomi from Zambia. I would love to say about Alive and Kicking training, which has helped me to teach my players about like mental health. It has really built my knowledge and they have passed through to my young players in, in the community. I also work with Special Olympics where we deal with children with a disability, mentally and physically. I hope and trust that the Alive and Kicking will continue teaching coaches in various parts of the world, not just in Zambia. Thank you very much, Alive and Kicking. I actually impressed myself with my news article this week in that it follows an older article that I found. Go on. Yeah, so a while ago I spoke about um, drones being used in Canberra and Australia to deliver food and amenities and we looked at why it was a success and why it wasn't, you know, they were too loud but they were on time, blah blah blah. Anyway this is an article from the BBC mm-hmm. uh, Google Wing drones approved for US home deliveries drone home delivery company Wing has been approved as an airline by the US Federal Aviation Authority it means the company will start delivering goods in rural Virginia in months Wing, owned by Google's parent company Alphabet, says the drones will carry food and medicine from local shops. In order to receive the certification, it, had, it said it had to prove that its drone deliveries carry a lower risk to pedestrians than those made by cars. Although other companies' drone, although other companies' drone delivery services have received approval for test flights, Wing is the first to be approved. The new airline status means that the drone company is subject to the same regulations as chartered flights, allowing it to deliver cargo and travel longer distances than other drone companies. Does that mean it's not got the same regulation that applies to drones? Well, it must be, because they've got they've got it based on... I was going to say, it's a US... bit of a bugger if you live next to an airport, you won't be able to get your stuff delivered because they're not allowed to go within... Within airspace, <laughs> yeah. I mean... I... Think about the whole Gatwick for all. The difference there is, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for all of America, but every airport that I've flown into in America is on the outskirts of the city. There's not that, it's not as Gatwicky throwing. I mean, I've been to about six airports in America, so I'm not coming from a place of expertise at all. Gatwick's in the middle of nowhere. Is it? Yeah. I can't remember. Anyway. Anyway, so this then um, 
Australia's Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Don't know why it comes to Australia. Oh, yeah. Australia's Civil Aviation Authority granted wing approval to launch a home delivery service earlier in April. Its initial launch partners there included a coffee shop and an ice cream shop. Why do you want ice cream to be delivered anyway? Like, Hang on, why do you want coffee to be yeah. delivered via air? It's going to spill Ridiculous. everywhere. Ridiculous, yeah, I don't, I don't understand I mean, it that. probably won't. That's probably me being overly simplistic. But but then the the residents there said that uh, the drones were really noisy and it really disturbed them. And then the article ends. So, to take from this, if you want to get your drone approved as a delivery function, you've got to go via aviation authorities. Which I think is a good standard to hold them to, right? Rather than writing new regulations and stuff like that, or utilize existing regulation that you know is tried and tested. Yeah, but is it fit for the? Well, time will tell. Time will tell. Mm. You know, I'm sure that there will be an example where they're charged on some kind of legislation that goes against the federal aid. federal aviation authority. But then, you know, hopefully they can then begin to edit, amend, and slightly change it so the drones can operate more freely. So I picked out something that's a little bit wacky. Oh. But I think it speaks about regulation. Oh. Okay. So Apple claims it isn't scanning customers' faces after team sues for $1 billion. Wow. Yeah. Successfully or in process of? In process of. Right, okay. A detective claims that Apple or its security firm use facial recognition software to have the wrong person arrested. This is an article from The Verge... um, by Shannon Lau. So it's being accused of using facial recognition software in its stores to arrest the wrong person for theft. Jesus. Um, while Apple tells The Verge it doesn't use facial recognition technology in stores, the case is weird enough. And it's not clear that's the whole truth. So Asume Bar, 18, claims in a lawsuit that he was incorrectly identified as the robber in several Apple store thefts across multiple states. He denies that he's the person in the photo that accompanied the warrant for his arrest. Backed by surveillance footage and the testimony of a detective, district attorneys in New York and Boston have already dropped the charges. Oh, our friend from last week, the DA of New York. I don't think it's been Spawn Jr. <laughs> um, according to the lawsuit, um, New York police department detectives noticed that the accused bar looked nothing like the suspect in the surveillance video. According to the lawsuit... The detective then explained that Apple's security technology identifies suspects using facial recognition technology. Apple refuted that, okay, yeah. saying that technically they don't have facial recognition in its stores, but also said that his statements described in the lawsuit were correct. So, so the, the, the confusion here is that their security firm, uh, security industry specialists, um, could have been used for facial recognition to analyse the security footage. Mm. Um, now, can I address the elephant in the room? This well, was in America. Was the guy black? Was he African American? Um, I don't know for sure, but looking at his name, I would suggest that his heritage is. Yes. Okay. So we know that bias. Exactly. In, bias in, bias out, right? Is a problem mm. when it comes to things like recognition using AI. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing is here. He is suing them because he got arrested at four o'clock in the morning. He missed an exam at school. So he's saying that his future employability options and all that are being infringed. Absolutely. So he's hitting them with a billion dollar lawsuit. I love we that he values his future as a billion dollars. I know that. Why that, that that's quite ballsy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would have been the next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's Very the goldfish funny. model, isn't it? You know, you ask for a horse and then you whittle down to get the goldfish. I'm sure he'll be happy with half a mil. <laughs> 
half a mil, yeah. Well, you, know, you know. Anyway. Point is, Apple and Big Tech have been proven to be incapable of self-regulation. Absolutely. Governments can only do so much. Because mm-hmm. they don't know enough. And we've been saying that people need to regulate or hold tech to account yeah. more more openly. I don't know the full ins and outs of this story. A billion yeah. sounds slightly ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. But it's consumers biting back against big tech, possibly overreaching. And to me, that that should surely send a positive message to people going, don't let people trample all over you here. Absolutely. You know, especially when he has missed an exam, his future, you know, is at risk. Great. I, well, I wish him all the best of luck. I really do. I mean, surely, the, surely in these circumstances, he'd be allowed to, to reset. I mean, when it, yeah, you'd hope. But you never know. You never know of America, do you? Extenuating circumstances. When I was at uni, what? didn't involve getting arrested uh, by the biggest company in the world. Yeah, or <laughs> no, by New York Police Department. Oh, yeah, as evidenced by Google, right? Uh, I hope I mean, Apple can't go around arresting people. That would be worrying. Imagine that. That would be still- Google. Apple. 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 Imagine that. Apple jail. You the, would just be in there the, with an, an an iPhone free, trying to update it and use all the nice new apps. Tim That's, Cook's secret police. Oh, sounds kinky. Uh, I don't know where to go after that. <laughs> it's rather worrying. Tim Tim Apple, as Donald Trump calls him. Does he? Have you not seen that clip? No. He's sitting there with Tim Cook and he, t- he calls him Tim Apple. Brilliant. Last thought before we go, go given that your birthday is May the 4th, and we were talking about Star Wars earlier. Yep, yep, yep. Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, mm. he's, he's providing the voice in the new Chucky film, mm. uh, where Chucky manages to infiltrate a smart home. It's a robot. Uh, uh, yeah. And like autonomous vehicles, autonomous lawnmowers. Love it. Love it. Brilliant. I mean, what a concept. I don't know if you knew, but Mark Hamill voiced the Joker in the Batman yes. comics, which is one of the most harrowing cartoon characters you will ever meet. Um, I can't wait to hear his adoptive cu- uh, chuckle. Or cackle, if you will, for Chucky. It's gonna. It, Aubrey Plaza's in it as well, who's um, April in Parks and Rec, which is one of my favourite programmes as well. I won't be watching it though because I don't really like horror films that much. Don't you? Nah. Good horror's great. It's more of a Rosie one. Like, I like to get out. Like, I was about to say, yeah. get out's a great film. But that's so much more than just a horror, right? It's got comedy. It's got social issues. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, I'd say it's a black comedy rather than a horror. Um, I mean, I would want a better phrase than black comedy to describe Get Out, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it's... that's not got racial overtones. <laughs> Come on. Black comedy is a perfectly fine phrase. It is. I know I'm just teasing you because it's funny. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway. No one listens to this part in the end anyway. <laughs> um, but until next time. Goodbye. Sure, bye. <laughs>